0: So we've been working our way through this book of Colossians, and we've worked our way over the last several weeks all the way through chapter 1, and today we're going to launch into chapter 2. Now chapter 1, if you recall, was this incredible, you know, about the bigness of God, Uh, and we kind of refer to it as colossal truth. Now in chapter 2, though, we're going to launch into this section of the letter written to the church in Colossae, and call it Colossal mistakes. Not because the Colossians were getting it all wrong. In fact, they were actually doing a pretty good job, according to the Apostle Paul. But Paul saw the potential for this church to be led astray. To actually drift... Away from the truth of the gospel that they had come to believe. And it's kind of incredible because they had only recently become Christians, maybe just a few years before, and the news of Jesus' death and resurrection was so fresh and so real. In fact, Acts, uh, the New Testament book of Acts, tells the story of how the news about Jesus was spreading all over, and that as God called the, Paul to be an apostle to take the gospel, the good news, to people who weren't Jews. It started spreading and in particular from the place of Ephesus where we get our book of Ephesians. The gospel spread from there to every person in Asia. This is incredible, right? So it's spreading like wildfire yet even though it was so fresh and so new, Paul saw the potential that the Colossians could be led astray. So he wrote about these colossal mistakes so that they would not drift. It's amazing how fast things can drift from where they started. Um, My family got to go uh, with my wife's parents and and in-laws, other in-laws to Galveston a couple times over the last couple of years. You ever been to the beach? We actually were able to go and and kind of split a big house right on the beach. And so we could just walk out onto the beach, lay our stuff down and then kind of go play in the water. And I'd be over there just like throwing Eli into the waves. I'm sorry, swimming with Eli. Um, And uh, he's my seven-year-old. And so we'd have a great time out there, but We're just like playing in the water. And then I would look up and I was just kind of discombobulated because I didn't recognize any of the houses that I was looking at. I was like, wait a minute, where are we? Because just out there playing and having fun, the current starts to take you farther from where you started. You don't realize it until it's sometimes too late. Well, that's how drift happens. That can happen to us spiritually too. In fact, maybe your own story includes a story of spiritual drift. Maybe your life, you can point back to moments where you have grown distant from God. And maybe you looked up one day and you're like, I'm not the person I used to be. Or I I don't have the same kind of faith I used to have. What happened to me? And you might start asking some of those questions because drift happened to you. Well, I want to tell you that even if you're here today, because you're trying to get back to the place you were before you drifted and today's your first effort to just get back into this Christian life or maybe you're just exploring what it means to be a Christian in general. What is all this church stuff about? I wanna just wanna tell you there's encouragement for you today. No matter what your story is or where you've been, this scripture is full of encouragement and practical advice because this is really where the rubber meets the road in this letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae. We've gone from this big theology to now talking about practical things. And so I think you're going to find some encouragement. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he he was writing it to defend and to give them a defense against drift. Now, there were certainly attacks on the church, which, I, you know, you might think of those as like big waves crashing down on the church. There were things like persecution. Uh, there were things like, you know, legal things against the church. You know, people uh, were being told they couldn't be Christians, things like that. But that Paul wasn't as worried about that. In fact, those are the kind of situations where the church tends to thrive. What Paul was worried about is that the church would just get become a little too friendly with the pop culture ideologies of the day. And that it was what was popular that might come alongside the church and then just sort of move them away from Jesus as the main thing to drift into something totally different. And this is what happens. This is the danger of drift. You know, it never happens, at least we don't think it happens intentionally, but it typically happens because we're deceived. we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. We're going to see Paul's heart for the church in the face of drift, which happens to reveal what I think a plan is for creating a defense against drift as a church. So I want to invite you to read with me this letter to the Colossians, chapter 2. Sorry, that was a big setup, but uh, now we're going to get into what the Bible actually says. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you can follow along in a Bible if you have one or on your device, or you can check it out on the screens. We have the text there for you. It says this, as Paul writes, he says, For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in Him Are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Have you ever heard the phrase, a wolf in sheep's clothing? You get that image in your mind. This is what Paul's referring to in verse 4. In fact, let's start right there at verse 4, go through the end of verse 5, and then jump back to verse 1. Is that okay? Can we do that today? Verse 4 and 5, Paul's talking about this idea of being deceived and how drift happens, spiritual drift happens because you've been deceived, When he uses that word in verse 4, the idea behind that word is the idea of seduction. Maybe a different way to think about it is in legal terms because this word could also be used in legal terms. It would be used to describe someone who manipulates evidence or tampers with evidence so as to convince someone that something that's untrue is true. So someone who's put a lot of thought into this. To change the opinion of others, right? Someone who's, who's taken incredible effort, who, who's not just doing this haphazardly, but is doing it intentionally. Someone who's playing the long game to lead people astray. This is what drift is. It's a tactic of the deceiver. Someone who wants us to not be where we are, and we know that our enemy is, does not want us to keep Jesus as the main thing of our lives, which is the whole point of this book of Colossians. The theme of the entire book of Colossians is to keep the main thing the main thing, and Jesus is the main thing. We know that the pop culture ideology of the day was that it was sort of a blend of a lot of things. Like Jesus was cool to them, but most popular uh, people in that realm, in in Colossae in the first century would have said, yeah, Jesus is great, but don't you also want these other things? Like, don't you also want to work really hard to fulfill the Jewish law? Don't you also want to see what's good about these pagan practices or this mysticism? Don't you think you can draw from that as well? And what happened is, as we've said before, Jesus ended up having a place but not the supreme place. It was almost Christian, but anything that's almost Christian, by the way, is not Christian at all. Because if Jesus is not the main thing, he is nothing. We know he's... The main thing, not just in our lives, but of all creation. That's where Paul comes from in chapter one, describing all uh, of, of this huge bigness of God. And now that we've read the first five verses of chapter two, it ought to change our perspective on chapter one. We get this incredible hymn or this poem about the bigness of Jesus, about how he's before all things. He's the end of all things. All things hold together in him. And we know now that Paul wasn't just sitting in prison one day going, I think I'll write a poem to the Colossians. No, he was giving them a defense against drift and deceit. So when you look back and you read chapter 1 again, you go, wow, these are colossal truths, not just to go, that's great, but to build my life on so that I won't be deceived. That's what Paul's trying to do for the Colossians here. Doctrine and theology are so important because if we're not aware or building, growing our doctrine, our theology, our thoughts about God, if we're not vetting those things against the word of God, then eventually we will be deceived and we can drift and we might not even realize it's happening until it's too late. A.W. Tozer said this, he said that what you think about God Is the most important thing about you. That's what that's the definition of theology, right? Your thoughts about God. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. So personally and together as a church, we have got to defend against drift, subtle shifts in doctrine over a period of time can become seismic shifts in theology. And we can end up totally off course. So over the next several weeks, we're going to get into the specifics of chapter 2 and the actual things, the threats to the Colossian church that were threatening to lead them astray. But today, I just want to kind of paint it in broad strokes of what the challenges, temptations were that the Colossian church was facing and maybe even what our current counterpart is to that today. What are the temptations that could lead us astray as a church in America today? And then we're going to see actually a plan develop from Paul's letter here in the first few verses about how to defend against drift in the long term. So, number one, temptation that the Colossians faced was that they were tempted to add things to Jesus you remember Jesus had a place, but not the supreme place. And, and it was as if the, the, the popular you know, people in culture were saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but don't you want these other things to just sort of bolster that faith, to make it better, right? You want, don't you want to pull from everything? And it's this idea of syncretism, that if I just sort of pull the best things from everything, that I can come up with a better thing. But Paul is saying, actually, that's not it at all. That's going to lead you to nothing. Jesus is the only thing. Right? That's what he's going from chapter 1. And so this is what the Colossians were tempted with, to add things to Jesus. Now, fast forward to America today. What's our temptation? It's not to add things to Jesus. Our temptation is to add Jesus to our things. It's just the exact opposite, right? It's, It's the reciprocal. Where In Colossae, Jesus was one of many things on a buffet I would say that today in America, Jesus is just the table salt. And we go about our lives filling our plates with so much stuff that by the time we get to the table, if it suits your taste, you can sprinkle a little Jesus on your life and feel good about it. But both are wrong. Both are people who've been deceived. Because if Jesus is not the main thing, what is he? The other big temptation was for the Colossians to seek wisdom and knowledge outside of themselves. There was a group of people who sort of formed what we kind of know now as a, as a cult in that day. And they were saying that there's an elite group of intellectuals that have a, a special secret knowledge an understanding about life. They hold the secrets to to happiness and, and the meaning of life. And you have to find those people and convince them to share with you these secrets. And then maybe if you're in the right situation at the right time and you continue seeking it, it might be revealed to you. Now contrast that with us who are tempted to seek wisdom and knowledge, not from someone out there. We are tempted to seek knowledge and wisdom from within ourselves within ourselves, as if we can find some sort of deeper meaning or satisfaction by being true to ourselves. The problem with this, both of these really, is that it's a twisted perversion of what's actually true. As Paul reminds the church that there is nothing outside of Jesus. He's it. He's the main thing. So we've got to be careful about our doctrine to make sure that we don't slip into drift. We're not deceived. We should seek to be as the church in Colossae was at the time of this letter. Now we know what Paul was trying to say in verse four, but in verse five, he actually was rejoicing. He was rejoicing, it says, that the church in Colossae was well-ordered and strong in faith. And those are cool words because the the image that would have, you know, come about in the minds of the Colossians as they read this letter for the first time in the first century was was images of war. It was a military reference. This is military jargon. Well-ordered and strong were words that described a battle-ready formation. A battle-ready formation. And so they would have been encouraged to see that Paul believed that they were ready to face what was coming. And they had this battle-ready spiritual formation that probably conjured up images of of like the ancient Roman Spartans who had this formation they called the phalanx, the phalanx. If you can spell it, Google it later. Even if you can't, you'll probably come up with it. But it's so cool. It's this incredible formation that even though they were sometimes in smaller groups, they could fight much larger enemies because of the formation of the phalanx. And what it did was they put the soldiers so close together in proximity that even their shields overlapped so that as they moved forward on the offense they maintained a strong defense this is the phalanx and this is a cool battle ready formation and as paul writes that i rejoice that you are well ordered and strong it would have called to mind those kind of images but lest they put too much emphasis on their organization or their effort the last word in verse 5 the last phrase in verse 5 is so important. He says, strong in faith in Christ. Not that they had an organization that was watertight. You know, not that they had a, a group of people who were just putting in the effort and working as hard as they can. No, it was that they had faith in Christ. Once again, Paul is sounding this horn, banging this drum. Jesus is the main thing. He's got to be central. So how would Paul lead a local church like the one in Colossae, maybe one like ours today, to not only put up a solid defense against deceit or drift, but also to grow deeper in joy through the knowledge and experience of Jesus? Look back to verses 1 through 3. And I want to uncover what I see as a plan here to help us build a defense against deceit and drift. Three sources of power that help us do this. The first is the power of prayer and preaching. Now you're in church and we're here and I'm the preacher and you're probably going of course you're going to say this. <laughs> this is what you do. <laughs> and yeah, you're probably partly right, but even here in the text, I mean what do we see here happening? Let me kind of explain this to you. Chapter 2 verse 1 is a turning point from talking about Paul's call to the church as the global body of Christ to his call to specific local churches. So he goes from the end of chapter one talking about how he's a minister as called by God with responsibility to God for the gospel in the world to now in chapter two going, and I love you guys as a church. Not only you, but Laodicea and, and other churches who have yet to see me in person. And he's got a special call, a burden for these people who are gathered around the good news about Jesus Christ. And he, so he's making this Turn to talk more specifically when we know from the end of chapter 1 and verse 29 that his commitment as a minister was to, to work hard, to labor, to strive with the strength of God and not his own strength. But then he doubles down using the same word again in chapter 2 verse 1 when he says, I'm struggling greatly for you. Not just for the gospel. I'm struggling greatly for you. Now, this struggle is the Greek word agon, agon. And I I hope that sounds familiar because we got a word from this in the English language. It's the word agony or agonize. And you're probably thinking about what that means. You're probably conjuring up images of suffering or hurt or heartache or loss, agony, agony. But the Greeks didn't use it quite the same way we do. This is so fascinating. The agon in Greece referred to the arena, which would have held things like the original Olympic Games. Remember the Olympics? They came from Greece, right? So the word agon was the place in which they competed, things like the Olympic Games. Why? It was because of the exertion, the effort that it required for an athlete to compete at that level and to win. So if you'll think about, you know, the, the face of a wrestler as he's in a headlock, agony fighting for his life, the the face of a runner who's sprinting for the finish, trying to finish in the lead. You just see agony in their face, which, by the way, is why no one will ever convince me that running is fun. I don't know if you've heard about those people. They're insane. Running is not fun. Just look at their face. It's agony. It's agony, right? This is that word, agon. And so this is where Paul is saying that, that, you know, and you get this, as the arena is the place to agonize, Paul's saying he's entering the spiritual arena to do spiritual battle on behalf of the Colossians. This is why he could say in verse 5, I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit. So, how can a man who's in prison, by the way, this is where he's writing this letter, he's in prison, he's shackled either to a wall or to a, sh- a soldier. But he's got chains on. How can this man have a spiritual impact on people he's never met? So here are the two things that I want to propose to you. Let's take preaching first. Preaching is kind of the obvious one because it's literally what he was doing by writing this letter. He was proclaiming Christ. He was preaching to the Colossians even though he couldn't be there. He wrote this letter. And now it's become our New Testament book of Colossians. I mean, this is a sermon from Paul. But more than that, if you back up to chapter 1, verse 28, you see that Paul already states preaching Christ as a defense against drift because it's the primary method of leading the church to maturity, which, by the way, is the goal. Maturing, growing in Christ is the goal. Not adding people, not getting bigger buildings, not growing in Christ is the goal. And preaching is a primary method that leads to that. The other most likely effort that Paul made through the church, for the church was through prayer. Prayer. If you fast forward to chapter 4, verse 12, Paul uses the same word agon again. Even if you flip over there in Colossians, just one page over or so, chapter 4, verse 12, he's referring to his friend Epaphras. Uh, the same friend Epaphras who Uh, he referred to in chapter 1 as bringing good news about the, the, the Colossians being faithful to the gospel and the gospel spreading all over the world, right? He says that Epaphras was wrestling for them continually in his prayers. Wrestling, agon, struggling greatly in his prayers for the Colossian people. So this is more than seeing someone's Facebook post about whatever they're going through and dropping a comment on the end that just says praying for y'all, right? Thoughts and prayers. This is Paul saying he is fighting a battle for the Colossians through prayer. C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, that guy, he was an atheist who became a Christian. And, uh, this incredible testimony and all of his, his writings at that point turned to where they, they actually shared about Jesus in these incredible ways. But C.S. Lewis had a favorite poet. Do you guys have a favorite poet? Any of you nodding your head? We're in different places. I don't have a favorite poet. I, I'm not a poetry guy. Um, I'm more of like a sports center guy, I guess you could say. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but power to you. We read a poem last week in our staff meeting, and it was uh, the poem by George Herbert, who is C.S. Lewis' favorite poet, called Prayer. It's the title of the poem, Prayer. It's a, it's a poem all about what prayer is and these really cool poetic ways of saying what prayer is. And this is what one of the lines is in this poem. It says that prayer is an engine against the Almighty an engine against the Almighty. And that probably sounds odd to you, like most poetry does to me. So we had to figure out what that meant. Well, this was written in the 17th century, long before combustion engines, long before vehicles, long before, you know, uh, know, uh, valves and firing and spark plugs and all that. It was referring to a siege engine, another military thing, that an army would have used against their opponents, constantly lobbing attacks, think catapult, just lobbing constantly. It's like the rhythm, the engine of attack against their enemy, bombarding their enemy, wearing them down. And you think, why do we do that against God? Well, God can never be worn down by our prayer. In fact, Jesus tells us in the Gospels to be persistent in prayer. In fact, to be annoying in prayer that we're so persistent. And so what Paul is saying here, as he says, you know, I struggle greatly for you. He's implying that he is fighting this battle for the Colossians through prayer, that he is constantly remembering them that he is bombarding heaven on their behalf with his prayer and it is making a difference it matters sometimes prayer is the work and he wasn't able to be there in person this was just as good so he's absent from them in body but he's with them in spirit prayer matters in fact it's probably a strong starting place for defending against deceit is to be praying for one another, to be praying for our church, and then to be prioritizing the word of God, the proclamation of Jesus. In fact, in 2023, just going to give you a heads up, something we're working towards is providing a resource that also kind of doubles as a, as a call to a church-wide prayer movement, 21 Days of Prayer, where we're gonna put something in your hands to lead you to bombard heaven on a daily basis for 21 days on behalf of your church so we can accomplish the mission God's given us. And so that's what we're gonna do at the beginning of 2023, starting on January 1st, and you're gonna hear more about that later, but that'll be a great way for us to start building our defenses because it, the thing about spiritual drift is that if you're not... Already strengthening your defenses, you're probably losing. You just don't know it yet. So this is a call to strengthen our defenses against drift. Second thing is this: the second power, the source of power uh, that we see in Paul's letter here against deceit and drift, is the power of Christian community. Christian community. Um, we've had some strong winds blow through Marshall recently. Friday night, praise God, wasn't as bad as they said it was gonna be. But a couple weeks before, we had some really strong winds. And if you just drive right down Carol Boulevard and make a turn down here, you're gonna go right past uh, someone's house from our congregation that had several healthy trees fall over, two of which landed on their house. And praise God, they are okay. I mean, it could have been devastating. But he protected them and praise God for that. I mean, our pine trees are tall. They can come down with a thud, Right? But have you ever heard of the giant redwood tree? The giant redwood tree? It's a big tree, mostly in California. Some of the oldest trees on the planet, which means they've survived a lot. But what's crazy about the redwood tree is that it can grow up to 300 feet tall. So that was like if you stood at the top of one of our pine trees and then looked straight up, you still might not see the top. That's how tall a giant redwood tree is. But what's insane about these things is that they don't have a tap root. Meaning as they grow straight up, they have nothing that goes straight down. This is ridiculous. Who designed this thing? God designed it. In fact, their root system is only three or four feet deep. But it grows out. It doesn't grow out super wide either. But the trees grow close together so that the roots intertwine and interlock. That when one tree is threatened, the other trees hold it up. This is the genius of God in the creation of the giant redwood tree. It's the genius of God also in the creation of his church, the body of Christ. That when one of us is threatened, we need each other to hold us up. This is what Paul's saying in verse 2 when he says he wants their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. So interlocking your life with the life of other believers in your local church, it's not only a strong defense against drift, but what he's saying here is it's actually how you experience the really good stuff that God designed church for in the first place. Look at what he says. It's through building community with one another that we gain this, the riches of understanding the knowledge of Christ. The riches When's the last time your faith made you feel wealthy? Rich, not with money, but with something much, much more meaningful. Richism of understanding and the knowledge of Christ. It, it's because of this reality that Moberly, we believe your greatest potential for spiritual growth happens in connect groups. We call them connect groups. We know you can grow here, and Lord willing, through you know, whatever this you call this preaching or whatever, you know, hopefully you grow. We know you can grow through serve teams. We're going to gather for team night tonight. We're going to be encouraging. We love to see how people have grown through serving. But we know that you can be best suited and positioned for spiritual growth when you interlock your life with other people in the church. And that happens best in connect groups. And so I want to encourage you. I'm praying for three new connect groups to to launch this spring after January. Uh, And, you know, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet. But maybe you want to be part of that. And maybe you want to go, yeah, I need to help one of those groups get launched. Maybe you go, well, I really need a group right now. <laughs> either way, I'm going to encourage you, either use your next card, which is right in front of you, or when you exit today, if you'll just slot back by the iPads, you can actually browse the groups that are already meeting right there on the iPads and find a group that helps, that meets, that, that you might be able to be a part of and plug into. And you can do that even today, and I would encourage you to do that. Last thing. The last source of power that we find to be a defense against Deceit and drift is in verse 3. It's the power of life in Christ. The power of life in Christ. It says in verse 3, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him. In Christ. But the key word here is the word hidden. And that's how a lot of people feel about Jesus. It's a lot of people how feel how a lot of people feel about faith in general. They feel like there's Something they just can't quite have access to. Like there's some sort of experience or knowledge that sort of has been withheld from them. But that's not it at all. I'll show you why in just a minute. But this word hidden is a specific word that Paul used to counteract some of the false teachers that were in the region of Colossae, promoting this idea of a secret knowledge. That some group of intellectual elites out there have this hold on the secret knowledge? And if you would just do more to obey the law or have more extreme discipline in your life, or if you would engage in these mystic activities or pagan rituals, then maybe you will achieve and unlock this next level of spirituality. That's what these guys were promoting around Colossae. But Paul writes to the church and he says, no, 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 no. In him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so using that word hidden is like an uppercut punch to these guys who are spreading this false teaching. It's like for Paul to use this word to say to these false teachers, Hey, this is what these guys are saying. Hey, look, Jesus is great, but, but there's more, right? If you seek the hidden, the secret knowledge through all these other, these other, you know, disciplines or practices then you're going to gain something. But Paul's going, no, no, that's no, not it at all. He's saying the hidden mystery, the fullness of knowledge, has already been revealed through God by God through Christ. It's already been revealed. And not to some special elite group of people, but to all who believe. To all who believe. So the word hidden, it doesn't mean concealed or secret. It means protected or, or stored away or kept safe, as in a treasure. And the map to this particular treasure, it's not confusing, it's simple. It's not secret, it's available to all. The map is Jesus. He is the way and in him all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found in him. So how do we tap into this treasure? Because there are a lot of people trying to live the Christian life who still feel like they're missing it. So how do we tap into this treasure or as verse 27 in chapter one calls it, the glorious wealth that is, in, that is Christ in you. The glorious wealth that is Christ in you. How do we experience this? Well, I like the image of, uh, of the wagon wheel. Henry Nowen is a, an author that used this image first. And uh, the wagon wheel, I shared this with you several months ago, uh, but I want to just remind you of it today because it's so impactful for the way we think about life with Christ uh, and life in Christ and the way we live our lives today. So picture an old wagon wheel. Maybe you have to picture yourself at first, first eating at Cracker Barrel and then you'll see the wagon wheel. But either way, picture a wagon wheel. got it in your mind? Wooden wagon wheel. You see the big thick spokes. Every spoke in that wagon wheel represents something important to you, something meaningful to you, something you want to build your life around, your education, your career, your family, your church, spirituality, dating, whatever it is that's important to you. Those are spokes in your wheel, things that you want to do well. But most of us live our lives running frantically around the rim, trying to get to every spoke. And you can just feel the exhaustion, right? Does it sound familiar a little bit? Just going as fast as you can in search of balance. You heard that? just trying to do your best to keep up with everything to keep all the plates spinning you're just running frantically around the wheel and that's how a lot of people see christianity too and they go it's just one more thing to add to my list i don't know how many to keep up with it except that that is a deceived version of christianity it's an almost christianity meaning it's not a christianity at all but in reality the invitation of jesus is not just to do your best running as fast as you can trying to do more The invitation of Jesus is to live with him at the hub of the wheel. You know what happens when you live with Jesus at the hub of the wheel? All of those spokes, all those things that are important to you, they become manageably in reach when you start from the right place. They all touch the hub. They're all close at the hub. When you start with Jesus, do you see the power that that brings to your life? Do you feel the collective "Oh i don't have to strive anymore. It ought to just be a breath of fresh air to you that's what Jesus meant. Haley even referred to this earlier in our worship when she quoted Matthew 11:28, 28, which says that the yoke of Jesus is gentle and easy, like his heart for us is not that he would pile on, but that he would take the pressure off. I mean, this is good, good news. And there's power to defend against deceit and drift when you keep Jesus the main thing of your life, when he stays at the center and you choose to live with him there there's power in that so the strongest defense against deceit and against drift is to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel is this not about what you have done or what you can do to make Jesus happy with you but it's that Jesus has already done what's necessary to restore you to God. He accomplished on the cross through his death and his subsequent resurrection the payment for sin for the whole world so that as we said earlier, if you would just believe in him, he would give you the gift of eternal life. The book of Romans says the wages of sin is death. And so if you are under the weight of your own sin, if you're trying to pay for your own sin, it will only end in death. You will never make up the payment. You'll always be in debt. But Jesus took your place. He made the payment for you on your behalf because of his great love for you as an incredible act of grace so that if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, you would not have to do anything. It's all done for you. Forgiveness becomes available to you. And you can be restored in a relationship with God for eternity. It's the free gift of God, Romans six twenty three tells us, of eternal life. This is good, good news. The gospel has got to be the place we start. So, if you're worried about where you've been spiritually, you've noticed spiritual drift, or you're defending against spiritual drift, you must come to the place of faith in Jesus first. After that, that's when our strategy comes in, where we go, hey, let's prioritize proclaiming the word of God in prayer okay, now that we've got that, let's prioritize community, Christian community in our lives. And when we get there, like let's just keep reminding ourselves over and over again to live with Jesus at the center. The life in Christ, there's power in that. But it starts with knowing him by faith. So if you don't know him by faith today, would you take that step of faith? I'm gonna encourage uh, you to stand with us as Haley and the worship team come. And as you stand, I want to just lead us in a prayer. Uh, And it's, it's going to be simple. It's going to be something you can maybe even pray along with me silently, and that's all right. But let me say this. While we sing, if you need to make a spiritual decision or take a next step toward God today, I want to invite you to take a physical step. And just right at the back of our room by the iPads, there's some people who want to help answer your questions, pray with you. In just a couple of minutes, maybe they can lead you to take a next spiritual step. And I want to encourage you to use this time for that. If you're not actually moving back there and you have another spiritual next step today to take, you can do that in your heart with God as we sing. But let's respond together, and I'll lead us in prayer to start that off. God, thank you for your grace on our lives that we know while we were at our most unsorted, with nothing figured out, even as we were your enemies, Christ died for us. I'm so thankful for life in Christ. I pray, God, that that would become just more of a reality, that we would be more awakened every day to what it truly means to know you. We don't have to come to you by our good deeds. We just come to you in faith because Jesus did everything that was necessary through his death on the cross. God, I pray that People in the room who might not know Jesus today as their Savior would take that step, that ever-important step, just to declare by faith that they believe and to receive your gift of eternal life. It would change the course from this day forward of everything. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we got to pray that you just remind us that today we would leave differently because of how you're stirring in our hearts and reminding us of your goodness and the power that we have access to through Christ. Help us keep Jesus as the main thing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.